Welcome to Educating African Americans for the 21st Century, A Call to Action. This is a production of Inward Journeys Consulting, an educational consulting company founded by Drs. Chris and Neka Harrison. Inward Journeys Consulting partners with schools, parents, and community-based organizations to improve K-12 education by providing quality services, collaboration, and educational solutions. For more information, visit our website at inwardjourneysconsulting.com. As you listen to this presentation, be informed, inspired, and take action. Good morning. Good morning. I know, I'm in my head here for a second. I'm going to join you here. <laughs> Just a moment. Carnegie Hall. 
And so I spent many, many meetings in here. And so to come in, and when I first saw the sign at Lister Hall saying if the uh, symposium has been moved to Lister, I was like, I mean, from Lister to Carnegie, I was like, okay, I'm going back home, uh, coming back and, and breathing this air of uh, design by Julia Morgan and paid for by Andrew Carnegie Foundation. Um, but, but certainly it was it's a homecoming in a lot of different ways. Um, Chris asked me to um, kind of give my experience or my perspective on uh, educate, the changing face of education. Um, and, and it's interesting as I started thinking about that and, you know, I want to give some historical perspective and, and I started to realize that, well, you know, I'm giving a personal perspective because the reality is I am a part of that 30 plus years, thank you Chris, uh, 30 plus years of public education and what have I seen uh, that has happened uh, specifically in the Oakland district, but in the, in the city, in the state, and on the national level. So as I started putting my comments together, I realized, well, you know, I am talking about my life. And I'm talking about the life of a lot of young people that I've worked with, and, uh, and they're older people now, and we're working together. Um, and so, uh, as I, I looked at the title he gave me, The Changing Face of Education, uh, I put, a, I put a, um, a subtitle there, Program of a, pro of a Program Kid. Because oftentimes when I introduce myself to folks and they wonder, well, what did you do? I said, I grew up in Oakland and I was in programs. Every time somebody had an application, I was grabbing it. Because I, I was fortunate that way that people came my way. And so I did put some comments together, uh, mainly to keep myself on time. Because as you see, if you saw the bio there, it was read that I was a theater arts and rhetoric major in college. <laughs> which means I can talk. Um, and if I can't talk, then I need to give my degree back. But if I can't talk in an organized way, then yes, I probably need to give my, give my degree back. So I prepared some comments, I will work from my script, and I will play around with the script as well. So you'll see me reading as well as uh, speaking directly. Um, so let me go ahead and start. As I said, I'm a program kid. I'm a product of the Civil Rights Movement. After I lay out the timeline I was asked to reflect on, You'll see that my formal education began in 1964 at Lockwood Elementary School, just 10 minutes from here. You know, the projects, or affectionately known as, anybody know? The Village. There you go. Okay, so a big guy up here from The Village, so some of us do make it out of The Village, and we, and we continue to do well. So that's where I started, and, uh, and that education continues today, still not too far from here. Now, I've been on an endless journey to learn and benefit from the opportunities around me. Educationally, I've benefited from numerous programs, as I said. Head Start. Now, some of you will hear, you go, oh, that's right. That was here, huh? And the Head Start's still here, fortunately. Um, Young Musicians Program. A Better Chance. CETA. Oh, it was about CETA. You brought that back, huh? CETA. Um, Upward Bound, Occidental College, yes, that was a program. Mills College, yes, this is a program too. And I was even a Boy Scout, so I tried everything to try to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. So if someone, as I said earlier, handed me an application to a program, and to this day, I'm going to fill it out. I mean, just past January, I went on an Outward Bound uh, course. Gave me an application. I said, yeah, I want to do that. 
I spent 10 days backpacking with 30 of my students in Henry Coast State Park, um, high school students. Um, on that trip and in that program, I learned that I still had limits to test, experiences to have, and learning to do. Another example of how I'm still signing up for programs, and you'll probably get the gist of what, you know, what I think is important and what we need to be doing is continuing that, is that this summer, for example, I'm taking four 10-year-olds to Japan. Wow. Now, we're going to a peace conference. Now, and we're going to Japan because Oakland and Fukuoka, Japan, have been sister cities for 48 years. And so our hope is that we're going to be meeting with 200 other 10-year-olds from around the Pacific Rim. And our hope is that children meeting now will be less likely to drop a bomb on the homeland of the friends that they made when they were 10, once they are in positions of power. So you see, I'm still signing up for programs. Um, actually, I'm dealing programs as well. And you know, when I talk with my kids at school, sometimes we've got to talk maybe in a way that they're going to understand and I've said to my students at Arise High School, I'm a hustler. Okay? I, and then they ask me where you grew up. I grew up in the village. So I'm a hustler. You know, we've got some hustlers that came out of the village, either one of the 6'5 or 6'9, but we don't even talk about all of them. We'll just talk about the ones that are still hustling. Because there's a lot of hustlers who the game played out a long time ago. But see, I'm a hustler, but my hustle is legit. And I tell the kids that, for example, education is my hustle. Programs, that's my hustle. I'm always like, here, here, take this, take this, take this. And I said, it's a real, because what hustling is about is doing something that you're good at and getting people to give you the resources to get that done and then to make some things happen that you can continue to build on that. So I've been doing that for a long time. I mean, I did it with the state of California when I wanted to have a charter school. Okay? Uh, California got $20 million to help start charter schools. And I know charter schools and open public schools, we have our relationship and we're, you know, we're working it out, but I'm doing the work of trying to really educate kids well. And so I tell my students, yeah, I hustled the state of California. They put out a proposal on RFP and see what my education did. I wrote a paper, a proposal, turned it in, and I got $450,000. How many of you can do that? And my kids, you know, the head tilts to the side, it's like, uh, so you can do that. I said, yes, you can do that. And I don't have to look behind me wondering who's going to try to come after me and get what I have because I got it all legitimately. Okay, so that's part of what I work, I do in working with kids. Is, yeah, I grew up here. I grew up uh, in Oakland. And we can transfer everything that we've learned in the streets and in school to continue to improve our community. And that's what it's about. Call it what you want. Call it education. Call it opportunity. Call it hustling. But it's all about making sure we're improving our community. So as I have learned, I have also given back. As I said earlier, I taught elementary school at Brookfield. See, one of my colleagues there, where I started the first year, that's where Chris and I met. See, Chris and I met when he was 10. And he was, he came, he was probably running across the yard. And I said, quit, quit running, Chris, stop. But he actually wasn't a bad student at all. He was one of our leaders at the school. And it was something I saw in Chris at that time that I knew at some point he would be Dr. Harrison. And that is who, you know, who he is today. And, and I've been blessed to be a part of that journey because we met when he was 10, we met again when he got into high school, sent him off to college, and I think he said one day he even thought about me while he was at college. 
when he was thinking about not going to a class. And my voice came into his head, said, Chris, get up, go to class. And so he went on ahead and did that. So we've known each other for a long time and we've done that. So I've taught elementary school, I've directed middle school and high school programs, uh, I've taught high school and college courses, and I've opened up a charter school in the community I grew up in. So that I'm on this stage or at this podium, uh, in this hall, on this campus, at this symposium with you, is a testament to what has been done and what is possible. Now as I identify different branches of the educational timeline since 1964, since Chris asked me to do a little historical, what has education been, what have I seen, uh, I will infuse my whereabouts and show how my experience paralleled the progression of educational opportunity in the United States. Um, I will conclude with where I see a ray of hope in the education of African-American youth. And all youth who suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as William Shakespeare penned. Now, in all my reading of Shakespeare as a theater person, you know, I, I think William Shakespeare was a black man. No, I'm kidding. Okay, I don't but, I mean, but think about it. Think about some of the stuff that he wrote. Othello, right? He wrote about A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Merchant of Venice, Much Ado About Nothing. Right? Did you, did you guys see Denzel in that one? Yeah? Was that a blue leather suit that he was wearing in that? Like, okay, but it was Shakespeare, and we were a part of it. Um, so maybe that's part of what, what took me in the theater as well. And so, you know, so there's a lot, there's a lot um, that has happened over those years, and so I'm going to kind of lay some of that out, but I thought I'd also see if I can kind of maybe get some of your minds or some of your memories going first. Let's see if this works.
head fountain. Any rats? Maybe later. And that song has come to me, and I've shared it with kids, and it's great to see them too. They're like, are you playing all that old stuff? And Vinci, they're like, okay. And it's true. The world won't get no better if we just let it be. And so today in our call to action, we're not here just to let it be. We're here to, to talk about what's been, to talk about what is now. And so what are we going to do? Um, so to get to some of the historical and to answer, and I, I was given four questions. And so I'm going to start with the first one and I'll probably run out of time before I can get to, through all the others. Um, but so the question was, how did the civil rights movement affect the education of African-American youth? And my experience, and there's many different ways that it's happened. Um, but starting in 1964, the war on poverty, uh, President Lyndon Johnson, who was fulfilling the legacy of President John F. Kennedy, to start programs that were really going to change, um, change the experience of poor people in the United States. And too often at that time, poor people were African American. Um, and so, and in that war on poverty, some great things did come out of that. Um, the passing of the Higher Education Act. And the Higher Education Act is what created the TRIO programs. TRIO programs are Upward Bound and Talent Search and, and uh, Special Student Services at that time. And so I directed two of those programs here on campus. Uh, and you'll find out more about Upward Bound as I go through. Um, and, and since then, the TRIO program has grown into actually seven or eight programs under that same umbrella of TRIO, but we don't change the name from TRIO because we don't want to confuse Congress. You've been funding this for all these years. If we give you another name, you think it's a new program. Let's call it what it is, let's add more. But TRIO has been around that long. Um, as I said earlier, Head Start was a part of uh, the War on Poverty. CETA was a part of the War on Poverty to create opportunities both through education and employment to help uplift communities. So that was 1964. So I'm going to shoot, shoot forward to 1974. And this is, again, where I can infuse myself into this part of history. And in 1974, I was in the Upward Bound program uh, that was serving, was being served by Occidental College down in Southern California. Now, I grew up in, in Oakland, so how did I get to Southern California? Another program called A Better Chance. And A Better Chance took me and my friends, and actually one of my friends who I went to Calvin Simmons with here in Oakland, and plucked us both out and, and took us to school, and we went to a high school down in Southern California. We lived in a house with 10 other guys. Okay, it was the real world before it became MTV, an MTV show. What happens when you put 11 high school boys in one house together? That's another uh, symposium. Um, but through the Upper Bound program, I met, I, met I, I was introduced to Occidental College. I spent three years of my high school years also going to the Ox Upper Bound program at Occidental College, living in the dorms, taking classes, getting myself prepared for my, my classes for the next school year, and then eventually transitioned right into Occidental, where I continued to grow, and I continued to be supported by programs that existed there. Um, so I graduated from I, I graduated from high school, went to Occidental, and then in 1980 graduated from Occidental and had to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I decided that I needed to come home. I've been living in, in LA, LA for seven years, and that was fine. And it was time to come back to Oakland and figure out what I wanted to do. And so, as I said, I started working in a bank, but then that got old, 
and then I came to Mills College. And then when I first day I came to Mills College, I, I found out that there's an upward bound program here. And I was like, well, here we go again. You know, once again, the thing that supported me is presenting itself to me again in my life. And so I started working with the upper bound program here as a teacher. My first class was a theater class, and then it was a public speaking class, and then I became a counselor, then assistant director, and then I went for four years and I was assistant to the president here, and then the real opportunity for me at Mills College came. When the, when the president called me in the office one day and said, you know what, the upper bound program director's leaving, would you be, and she couldn't finish the sentence. Would you be interested? And I was like, yes, thank you very much. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> Love you, had a great time, got to go, work with my kids. And so I came back to Upper Bound as a director, and then a few years later added the Educational Talent Search Program. Um, uh, through that process with Mills Upper Bound, I did one of the things that we have to continue to do, and that is become involved in the political process. I remember there was one uh, March, I think it was, that Chris and I traveled to Washington, D.C., Young man, I don't know if he was in his junior year or senior year, but he was older than whatever year he was in. Because when he got to Washington, D.C., back then in high school when he was going to Oakland High, he had a room of 500 people, 800 people going, wow, that kid's in high school? Then he's going to be doing great things. And true enough, that's exactly what's happening. So we did that. We became more involved in the political process. We held, uh, I held leadership positions in different organizations. Okay, so that's 1984. Now I want to jump to 2004. And what now we've started to call the war on opportunity. The war on opportunity. And what the war on opportunity was is that um, there were different, different um, efforts to eliminate upward bound, to eliminate the TRIO programs. And sometimes I tell people the reason that is is because it was successful. It wasn't meant to succeed. I mean, yes, war was, you put things out there to change things, and then when they actually work, it's like, well, we didn't think you're going to do it. And so, so over time, uh, different, different parties wanted to get rid of upper bound. And so that war on opportunity began. And actually, it, it worked. Because um, in around uh, about 2005, we lost our upper bound program here at Mills College through the proposal process, through politics. But that, but we still weren't done. And so we fought with the help of Barbara Lee, Barbara Boxer, Diane Feinstein, and we got our program back. The 70 programs that were cut by the Department of Education were refunded, and because we knew how to get additional money, they had to fund another 30. So we ended up with more programs that were cut in the first place. Okay, so this has been a struggle, this has been a battle for a long time. And so that was the war on top opportunity that took us up to 2004. Then my next step was in 2007, when I decided after 25 years of being at Mills, I, I wanted to do something else. And so what I did was open a charter school in Oakland. And what we've done at the Rice High School is we've kind of fused Upward Bound and TRIO with the charter school movement. The opportunity to create an educational environment that can help kids be successful and take a program that has worked for many years and put that in a regular school setting. So that's what we've been doing. Um, so that's 2007 to 2010. And I'm proud to be able to say now in 2010 at Arise High School, we'll have our first graduating class. And our first graduation. <laughs> 
graduation will be right here at Mills College in Lister Hall. I came to talk to the president about a month ago, and I said, you know, we got to do the right thing. <laughs> All right? Jan, you know, we, we talk. I mean, hey, I was your assistant. We, we had some late nights talking about how we're going to get this done. Now it's time for me to come back and say, I need, right? What did, uh, um, what did uh, Dr. Van Hook say? I became the beggar. <laughs> the beggar man. So, Mary Bethune, uh, it works. And so, we're going to have our first graduation here. We have 23 seniors. Probably 22 will graduate. One of them just going to spend another year with me. That's all. He's just not quite ready. Out of the 22, 19 have gotten into four year college. So, and the other three, I'm now I'm begging because I'm getting on the phone calling Cal State. You know, please, he's, if he doesn't get out of Oakland, he may not get, right now, may not get out. It's, it's necessary to get out in order to gain some perspective and some experience and then come back. And that's exactly what this young, uh, what I'm trying to get kids to be able to do. So we have taken TRIO and the charter school movement and fused those together to create a high school in Oakland. Um, so one of the questions that was part of uh, part of the first question too was, well, well, what's at risk? What is currently at risk? And I would say that all of this is at risk, all of it, if we don't stay uh, stay focused. Uh, for example. And the reason is because of the economic situation that's going on and the politics. But just this past Wednesday, I went to an Oakland school board meeting. And I don't have to go, because I'm a charter school. Right? I went, I went to the finance committee meeting. I don't have to go, because I'm a charter school. I know people like that. And why? Because I don't want to go if it's about a bunch of, and we'll talk plain, a bunch of mess. And too often, the work of the district, from my perspective, has been having to deal with a lot of mess. So when they asked me, Romeo, well, why do you want to open a charter school? We know you. You've been around doing great work. Why don't you become the principal of one of our schools here in Oakland? I had to think, how do I say this? In a nice way. Autonomy. I need to be able to do what I think is right. And I can't do that if I'm being called to a bunch of meetings downtown. Or I, I, and you won't be able to look the other way if I'm doing something that's just a little bit different, but effective, but it's against the rules, so you must stop me. So I said, I just give me a chance. And so they did. Um, but let me go back to the finance committee meeting. And this is why all of this is at risk. Next year, and I don't know if this is in the papers yet, or because I, I try not to read that, I just try to stay focused on the work that I'm doing, but what I found out on Wednesday night is that Oakland Public Schools has to cut $85 million out of next year's budget. Where is that going to come from? They started saying, oh, we're going to cut this, we're going to cut this from the top, we're going to do this, and then when it got to, oh, we're going to cut public safety, we have to cut the public safety officers, and you know, that's when Alice Spearman Set up. Whoa, 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 wait. What do you mean you're going to cut safety? We have to find someplace else because our schools must be safe for our kids. So that's that's why part some of this is in risk because decisions are being made, budgets are being cut, and it's affecting our kids. Um, the reason I was at that meeting on Wednesday night, it's not that I don't have a life or I don't live at school, um, is because as a charter school, we got the opportunity, because it's the law, to ask the state of California to please 
You know, the checks that you were going to send us in January and February and March that you just told us you're not going to send us until June. We, have, we can ask for, please, don't defer those funds. But we have to go to the district to ask the district to ask on our behalf. Alice also liked that too. She's like, hmm, Romeo. You know, he, now you're asking me to help you out. I said, yes, Alice, because we are all working together. So please send it through. It won't cost the district anything. And she, you know, when, it, when everybody heard that, I was like, okay. But at least we were able to ask to send the money that we need to, to operate our school for the remainder of the year. We're not talking about next year's money, this year's money. But we'll see what happens. Um, and then the other, the, uh, another example of how all of this is at risk is that there's a new attack on Upward Bound. So there's a new campaign to save Upward Bound. Okay, so the success that has happening, been happening since 1964 is, uh, has done a lot, but there's still a lot that needs to be done. And, and, uh, and we have to stay vigilant and stay focused on making sure that the opportunities that we have for our kids are not just taken away uh, because of uh, different things that happen with our laws. Um, so I'm going to start to move a little faster here. Oh, so for, now we're at 2010. And so what do we have to look to? Now, I've fortunately been able to, um, a few few weeks ago, I was reading an article in the uh, Find Out the Captain, which is a educated magazine that educators read to try to stay up on, well, what, does our, what is our country doing? And there was an article in there by Arnie Duncan, our uh, Secretary of Education. Uh, by the way, I, I need to talk to Arnie Duncan because he has my job. <laughs> you know, because years ago when I was talking with, you know, kind of thinking about once I decided education, what do I want to do? I said, you know, the job that I would love to have in here would be Secretary of Education of the United States. And, uh, and that would be great. I mean, I said, well, if the right president called me, you know, the opportunity might come. And sure enough, the right president is there, Mr. Obama, except he called Arnie first. So, you know, we'll see. Maybe in the second term, I can get a phone call. And for that reason, I might move to D.C. instead of Hawaii. <laughs> pretty soon, I'm heading the other way, but I could go and do that. Um, but Arnie Duncan was asked some questions about um, what is it going to take to really fundamentally change public education in the United States. And there are four, uh, four things that they pointed out, that he pointed out in this article. That, that what we have to do is we have to have internationally benchmarked standards and assessments so that we know that our kids are performing not on a local level, not on a national level, but on an international level. Because we live in a global economy. So our kids from Oakland can't just learn about how do I do business in Oakland. Because we are supposed to be, we started um, all over the world. We continue to be all over the world. So why would we stop now? So that's what we need to be preparing our kids for. And that's what public ed education has to do. The second point they made in this four-point plan is to recruit, develop, and retain, and reward effective teachers and principals. So hopefully that's part of what the Obama administration is going to be doing. We need to build data systems that measure student success and inform teachers and principals how they can improve their practice. We're always, not always, often talking about what the kids need to do. And we don't look often enough at what do we need to do as educators. 
Because I needed to get an education to get to the point of where I am, to become a teacher, then a principal, and all this. And I need to continue to educate myself. So I, I really like that piece there. Let's test the kids, let's assess the kids, and let's find out what we need to do differently. Because our kids want to be successful. There's something that we, as an education system, are not doing for them. Um, and then what Arnie Duncan says is turn around the lowest performing schools. I was glad in that article he didn't say just shut up. He said turn them around, which means provide them with support. Make them a priority. Let's help our struggling schools to turn around and be successful. So, um, and one of the other, the other thing was leadership at the top. Um, I was going to read part of it, uh, part of the article there, but I'll, I'll save that for another time. But basically what he's saying is that there has to be real committed leadership at the top. As a school leader, I'm the first one there, and often the last one to leave. And I don't, I don't uh, complain about that, because that's what my level of commitment is. At Upward Bound, when I was here, I would be here seven days a week, and not call it work, because this was my life. This is what made a difference. And so, and, and I remember in this room one time, and Chris was at this meeting, we had our staff meeting before the summer program started. Bring all the staff together. We're about to go on a five-week journey, everybody, and everybody's got to be ready to run from the beginning, take a deep breath, and we'll exhale five weeks from now. And I said to the staff that morning, I said, you know, I don't expect everybody to be as committed as me. And then I caught myself. I said, whoa, 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 whoa no, let me change that. Let, oh, wait, let me change that. Welcome to Upward Bound. Yes. I expect everybody to be as committed as me. Because that's what it's going to take to get our kids there. It's going to take early mornings, long days, late nights, and sometimes night, uh, what, what we call them? All-nighters, right? We have plenty of those. And we've had them here. And so... That's what it's, it's going to take, that kind of leadership. We need to find the folks who are coming to get jobs. And they want to come from 9 to 5, and they still exist. Let's call it what it is. It still exists. So let's find those and find them something else to do. Because they're not here to teach our kids. They're not here to live with our kids and to be with them. Okay, so that's what, um, so I, I agree with Arnie Duncan and, and the President that we need leadership. Um... And then, and the last piece about the article that I'm going to talk about is where he talks about charter schools. Okay, and I, and I don't know that I was getting in the business of defending charter schools and, and all of that, but I, I want to talk about what works because they want, to, they want to do what works. And so there are a couple of points about charter schools, and I'm glad that this is out there too. High bar for entry. Don't give a charter school to anybody who writes a proposal. There are schools that don't work. So let's find, let's make sure there's a system that's going to determine what works and what doesn't. And when it doesn't, give some help. If it doesn't work, something's wrong, we've got to start all over again somewhere else. So I agree with high bar for, uh, for entry. Um, real autonomy, that's what I asked for in the very beginning. And the president is looking at uh, charter school leaders as educational entrepreneurs who have a different vision of education who need the freedom to be free from bureaucracy, need to be innovative and creative, and that's what we're trying to do. And then the last one is real accountability. Five-year performance contracts, and if the schools aren't performing, then maybe they need to close. 
So, you know, so from 64 to now, there's been a lot that's gone on. And we have the potential to um, have, continue to have great things go on as long as we do what we're doing today and continue forward and, uh, and continue to make a difference. Now, there were three other questions, and I'm not going to be able to answer all of them completely, but there's a quick bullet for, for, for each of them. The second question, and then we'll probably have some time to ponder this together, is how does the African-American student or urban student of today compare to the African-American student of 10, 20, 30 years ago? Now, I don't know how Chris put that question out there and said, 20 minutes, Romeo. I was like, oh no, he didn't even say Romeo. He said, Mr. Garcia. I can't get that young man to call me by my first name. And I guess that's okay, right? Right, Chris? He's like, I even said to him one day, Chris, you're 30-something. You can call me by my first name. He said, okay, Mr. Garcia. <laughs> All right. Um, the second, so my answer to that is, the students are the same. The students are the same. They're thirsting for success, but being deprived of sustenance. Too often, they're left to their own devices. And I think someone else is going to talk about that today. What happens when we leave our kids to their own devices? They're teaching each other. And if we aren't teaching them in school and they aren't in school, then they're teaching each other what's going on on the street. And that's not leading them in the direction we need to be going. Um, the third question that was asked was, has the focus and intent of urban education changed within the last three decades? If so, how? What does this mean for us? And I say, yes, it has changed. It has changed many times with each, with each administration. JFK, LBJ, they had the war on poverty. Uh, Ronald Reagan had Reaganomics. We call that the eight-year war. We had to fight every single year to get money in that particular era for education. George Bush, and I don't know if I attributed this to the right person, did he, was he like a thousand points of life? That was dad. I'm George one. I'm still on George one. I'm getting to George two in a minute. Um, and then there was Bill Clinton, Education 2000. Well, we had to get Mr. Clinton to say, well, don't call it Education 2000. Call it TRIO. And we're, we're already doing that. Um, and then George W. Bush with no child left to die. <laughs> um, and now we have Barack Obama change that can happen. And so it is happening. And so uh, to, to, to wrap up, there are some key elements, a uh, couple of key elements in effective educational environments. Healthy personal relationships between adults and youth. We need smaller schools. And we need schools, my perspective, project-based. We're not just teaching kids so that they can pass a test, but so that they can do something with it. Um, opportunities for students to have choice. The more programs there are, the more choices they will be able to make. In the void of programs, they're going to make their own choices to be on the street. And then finally, we need authenticity in our education system, rigor, inspiration, Success and empowerment. Those five words spell arise. Authenticity, rigor, inspiration, success, and empowerment. So the epilogue to all of this now is, my experience in public education was a success. Everything I have done as an educator has been to emulate that experience for the students that I work with and work for. If we are to be successful in educating African Americans for the 21st century, or anyone 
for that matter, then we must create healthy, culturally competent learning environments. We must activate good legislation and work together to realize the tremendous potential that is cresting at this critical moment in our time. Our future depends on this. Thank you.